This is Equipping Eve, the podcast that seeks to equip women with fruits of truth from God's Word. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ begins by being grounded in his word. So let's open our Bibles, ladies, and prepare to feast on the truth God has given us. Well, hello, ladies, and welcome to Equipping Eve. I'm your host, Erin Benziger, and today we're going to take another break from our walk through the Gospel of John just to talk about another topic. I don't want you to get bored with the Gospel of John because that would be... A horrific thing to have happen and so we're just trying to do a break every few weeks and talk about something else so that's what we're going to do today um, and another reason we're going to do that is because I came across an article a couple weeks ago and I just I really really liked it um, and I wanted to share it with you and share some thoughts on it and of course we'll link to this at Equipping Eve as well um, the same link that you can find the podcast you can find a link to this article. So this is at crossway.org. It's called The Hidden Value of Pastoral Gentleness. It's by Dane Ortland. Um, So not an endorsement necessarily of everything ever written or said by this person, but um, some good thoughts here that I think might actually be taken from a, a larger book. So The Hidden Value of Pastoral Gentleness. And ladies, don't tune out just because you're not a pastor, nor should you be a pastor because this is applicable to all believers. So the article starts out asking, what colors your ministry? He says, as leaders of God's people, we all long to make a difference for Christ. We don't want to be unfruitful. We want our lives to matter. It's easy to let zeal and ardor and intensity and hurry to color our ministry, our preaching, counseling, staff reviews, newsletters, and emails. He says, we remember magnificent men of faith like Luther or Edwards and wish to follow in their footsteps. What we may not know is what men such as these themselves said about a gentle spirit. And I'm just going to stop there, ladies, and say, you know, how often do we actually hear that? You know, we always hear the the fire and brimstone quotes from these um, heroes of the faith. And even from today's um, pastors, you know, it's always the harsh, angry quotes that get put out there as if it's just the most amazing thing ever. And I would argue, um, and perhaps it's because of my personal experience with such unkindness, but I would argue that that is not helpful um, as a sole focus of someone's ministry or as a sole focus of you as a, a follower of a particular ministry to always focus on these harsh, angry statements and be like, yeah, that's right. You got to repent or you're going to hell. Back up. True. Yes. Let's think about how we can most effectively communicate that to those who are lost. All right. I'm getting ahead of myself. So back to this article. Luther wrote to a fellow leader in 1528, quote, God has promised great mercy to those who seek peace and endure guile. War does not gain much, but loses much and risks everything. Gentleness, however, loses nothing, risks little, and gains everything. Edwards said, quote, A virtue which I need in a higher degree to give a beauty and luster to my behavior is gentleness. If I had more of an air of gentleness, I should be much mended. And I think I can certainly identify with that. I, I tend to be um, sarcastic and 
can be callous at times as well. And I think we all need gentleness. We, just because you're a woman, female, does not mean you're automatically gentle. And something else I want to point out, that this is a characteristic of all Christians. This is Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards were saying this about gentleness. So it's not that men have a Y chromosome and they don't have to be gentle, but women have the, the two X's and so they have to be. That's not how that works. Right, Christians are called to the same character, male or female, but that's another episode. Ortland goes on, he says, the main reason to nurture gentleness is neither pragmatic nor historical, but biblical. And he lists several scriptures here. Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I can't talk today. The fruit of the spirit is gentleness. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness. 1 Timothy 6, 11, pursue gentleness. James 3, 17, the wisdom from above is gentle. Wisdom from above is Christ. So there you go. In this short article, I'd like to ask pastors to consider cultivating gentleness in their leaderships, and let me give you four reasons why. I'm going to focus on these four reasons here, ladies, um, with the spoiler that number four is my favorite. Number one, gentleness surprises people. And that's true. He says, in this angry, irritated world, gentleness sticks out. It catches us off guard. Amid the clamor above the din, a gentle voice arrests us. Gentleness may then be considered a powerful apologetic. Not that we wish to be gentle in order to get attention, but as we follow scripture's call to gentleness, we can be calmed by the knowledge that this will surprise others. It may feel counterproductive, but that is only because we live in a culture, sometimes even a church culture, of loudness and aggression. Yes. And maybe you've experienced this, ladies. You know, I have in my professional life, um, coming at things just more calmly and gently than maybe people expect, and it gets their attention, and things actually end up being more productive that way. So surely all of us have experienced this, have been on either the receiving or the delivering end of that gentleness. Number two, gentleness woos people. I hate the word woo. Um, but it's in here. Like a sea anemone slowly being coaxed to open up again. Awkward metaphor. Gentleness coaxes people to open up. Gentleness makes people feel safe. When we are harsh or needlessly assertive toward others, they may not show it, but they are putting up defenses. Incredibly true. They are on their guard. We may win the argument, but we have not won the person. Gentleness wins the person, whatever happens at the level of rational argumentation. And we have to think about this when we're presenting the gospel. You can win that argument because you said all the right words, you think. But if you weren't gentle, you didn't win that person over. And that person doesn't ever want to talk to you again because you're a jerk. Okay, number three, gentleness dignifies people. The subtext of hasty aggressiveness is superiority. Yes, that's true. We get impatient and harsh and raise our voices because deep down we think we are superior. The subtext of gentleness, on the other hand, is you matter. You have significance, and I dare not neglect that. God made you in his own image. Not only is everyone made in God's image, he writes, everyone is a sufferer. Every human being is walking around loaded down with a heavy backpack of disappointments, rejections, and anxieties. Gentleness treats people according to their inherent glory, however, not according to the adversities of life that may cause them to be difficult people. And number four, my favorite, Gentleness gives people a living picture of Jesus himself. And this is why I cringe when I see ministry leaders, pastors, 
failing to exhibit a spirit of gentleness. So you are an under shepherd of Christ, and yet you don't represent Christ at all because you're a mean, angry, quite frankly, horrible person. I don't care if you stand behind a pulpit each week. I'm still going to say that, so don't tell me not to touch God's anointed. Orland writes, outside of word and sacrament, the closest thing to Jesus himself that people will get in this fallen world is you. Christians are walking vessels of the gentle love of Christ. Your treatment of others tells them what you really think Jesus is like, whatever you may say you believe Jesus is like. Yeah, your words can say one thing, but your actions demonstrate what you really believe. He goes on, he says, but where will we find this elusive gentleness? It does not come naturally. No, it doesn't. But the call in scripture is to be gentle is a call toward God likeness. We may conclude from the tsunami and the elephant that God is anything but gentle. But the Bible says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 40, 11. This is who God is. And gentleness is not only God-like in general, but Christ-like in specific. The one place in all four Gospels where Jesus tells us what his heart is, he says it is gentle and lowly. And this doesn't contradict Jesus' wrath or righteous anger. Ortland goes on, he says, we tend to imitate Christ's zeal out ahead of our imitation of his tender gentleness. It's like he just hit every nail on the head with this article, so I'm really appreciative of this article. I am asking you to consider stepping into a gentleness your life and ministry have perhaps never known, he says. And I am suggesting that you will only do that as you ponder Christ's gentle ways toward you. How many sins does he alone know? How many times have you failed him, sidelined him, taken him for granted? And in how many of those instances has he come to you in harshness? Does he not deal with you tenderly and gently? Have you not found in your own case that a bruised reed he will not break? And I just love those thoughts, ladies. As I said, this isn't just for pastors to consider. This is for all of us, particularly because people will emulate their pastor. You know, he's their shepherd and you tend to emulate your shepherd. So if I meet people from a certain church and they are mean, cranky, critical, horrible people, I'm not going to go to that church because that's the fruit it's producing. That's just the reality of it. I know because I've, I've been there. And so it's for us to consider as well. There's so much harshness among Christians and we, we expel that harshness in the name of Christ and in the name of truth. But, and I stole this from someone on Twitter and I don't remember who it is, so I'm sorry. Um, If you know who this is, feel free to let me know and I'll be happy to give a link. But uh, there was some sort of quote on Twitter uh, to the effect of that truth without love isn't truthful and love without truth isn't loving. And that's absolutely 100% true. And I'm sure lots of people have said something to that effect. But there are so many sermons and so many messages and so many conversations that are just filled with fire and brimstone. And I guess I'm thinking in terms of how we present ourselves to unbelievers. If someone knows that we're a Christian and we get into that theological conversation with them, or there's someone who we think is in error and we try to have a conversation with them, how do we go about that conversation? Do we go about it with gentleness or do we go about it with that 
arrogance, that harsh arrogance that, as Ortland says, really betrays an underlying sense of superiority that you're better than the person you're talking to. But if not for the grace of God, you could be in the same error or you could be unbelieving as well. And we tend to forget that. And so when we hear all these fire and brimstone and angry, harsh criticisms, you know, it's as if our only motivation for coming to Christ, if we're looking at a gospel call, is a fear of hell and judgment. But what greater motivation is there for someone to come to Christ than love, than forgiveness, than grace, than mercy, than peace, eternal peace that can be yours in Jesus Christ? We don't come to Christ just because we're scared of going to hell. I mean, that, you know, that's one way to get someone there. But someone who has great sin in their life, but then hears the good news that Jesus Christ will forgive that sin, that he has died for that sin, and that they don't have to live like that anymore, that he can change them, and they can have peace with him and be with him forever. Well, that's amazing. You mean someone loved me enough to do that when I have done all of this? What? That's the good news. And yes, we should be clear about sin. We should be clear about error and false teaching and point those things out. And and when we're talking about a gospel call and the salvation message, we need to be clear about the need for repentance. But people are drawn to Christ because of his kindness, not because he's this scary judge pointing a fiery finger at you on your way down to hell. And I encourage you ladies to go to scripture and see if this is true. How did Jesus draw people to himself? Yes, he had righteous anger. Yes, he had moments of not arrogance at all. So that just needs to stop entirely from Christians. And I'm not completely innocent here. So it's not like I'm sitting here pointing the fingers at a bunch of people. We all need to examine ourselves in this. But when it comes to dealing with unbelievers or people who we may think may be you know, believing, be deceived into a false gospel, and we want them to see the truth, you can throw your fire and brimstone and anger at them, or you can look at how Jesus drew unbelievers to himself. And if you consider, we've been going through the Gospel of John, so let's just look in the first few, few chapters of that Gospel. In chapter 1, we see how he called his first disciples. How did he do that? Chapter 3, we see how he dealt with Nicodemus. How did he do that? Did he scream and holler at Nicodemus and, and say, You have a, a false religion and you're going to hell? Because I missed that in chapter 3. He was pretty straightforward with Nicodemus. Sure, of course. What about chapter 4? The Samaritan woman at the well who was leading a very sinful life. And he didn't beat around the bush at all. He was pretty straightforward with her about her sin and revealed that. But he was gentle with her. What about the official whose son he heals later in that same chapter? 
What about chapter 5 and the man who was paralyzed and blind and lame? What about chapter 6? He spoke hard truth to the crowd, that's for sure. And they walked away. But how did he communicate that truth? In anger? Or just, this is the way it is. What about chapter 9 and the man born blind? How did he deal with that? How did he speak to that man? This is just a sampling. Think of other examples of of sinners that Jesus called to himself, Zacchaeus and others. What kind of picture do we really have of Jesus? And what kind of picture, what picture of Jesus are we portraying to others? Okay, ladies, today as an endorsement, if you will, um, or recommendation, I am actually going to recommend the NIV 1984 version. So good luck if you don't already have one on your shelf because it's been out of print for quite a while. I was um, just going through some of my Bibles the other day and came across an old NIV that I had when I was quite young. And most of us probably had the NIV or maybe the NKJV or the KJV. Um, And I was just kind of flipping through it and thought this was a really decent translation, very easy to read and follow and understand. And um, so I've just kind of been enjoying reading that here and there as well. I've been listening to some um, older sermons um, and those were preached from the NIV 84. And so I've been following along in that as well. And so I just wanted to commend that version to you as well. Um, I'm not going to switch to that full time or anything, but if you have an old NIV 84, you might want to pick it up and just read it. I think it's helpful to read from different translations from time to time. Um, I think it just helps us maybe understand a passage better, particularly if we're working with a more wooden translation um, that doesn't read quite as easily as others. And so I, I don't know if I've recommended these two in the past, but I would say the NIV 84, not a particular fan of the new one. The ESV um, is what I use. Currently, the CSB is also um, a very accessible translation that is um, very enjoyable for reading. So that was several endorsements. There you go. And so parting thought, ladies, I want us to consider whether we are afraid of Jesus, because if we're believers, this shouldn't be the case. Now, if we are unbelieving, yes, absolutely, we have reason to fear the God of the universe and the judge of our soul 100%. But if you find yourself fearful of Jesus as a believer, I encourage you to pray about that. And I want us to look at our own lives and consider where we might need to be more gentle or be more like Jesus in that regard. And that's a challenge for all of us, including myself. All right, ladies, until next time, get in your Bibles, get on your knees, and get equipped. Thanks for listening. Mm